Hello everybody, and welcome to the Grund. Kirk and Anthony are here. Anthony, how are you? You know what? I'm doing fine. Um, the world is a crazy place right now, but I'm here talking about things with uh, one of my favorite people in the world. So, I guess, all things considered, I'm doing quite fine. How are you? I would say the same. The world is an awful place. But, uh, <laughs> hey, this is fun. And hopefully you'll have fun listening to what we have to talk about today. Uh, this is going to be a very, very heavy movie topic episode. Uh, I'll put timestamps. I've been doing this for the past few episodes now, but we'll put timestamps. If, uh, if you don't want to hear us talk about Jurassic World, for example, uh, then you can skip to us talking about uh, something else. But Anthony, you watched a series of movies recently. I did. I, I was going to say, maybe I should start this a different way. Uh, the topic of conversation will be X-Men, but it's not me. It's you who watched <laughs> the X-Men. This has happened twice now. Yeah, that's you true. You watched the X-Men movies. I watched X-Men. Uh, everybody knows Kirk as the X-Men guy. Uh, he's He has that big X on his chest, famously. Hold on. He's, he's popular with uh, the X-Ladies. Oh. It's true. Um, but. Okay. Um. I watched, uh, yeah, I guess last time I talked about how we watched the X-Men, the animated series, which was the 90s cartoon that ran, um, uh, that featured the X-Men. And to follow that up, I thought it'd be appropriate to watch the X-Men film franchise from Fox. And uh, I guess the big reason for that was I like the X-Men and my girlfriend, Ray, who I don't know if you guys ever have ever mentioned her before, but Ray, uh, she's, she knows the X-Men. But it's been a while since she's seen some of these films, and it was just sort of a refresher to kind of go back and, and see what these films are like. So, like, the first three, almost, maybe first four, she has very little sort of memory of, as compared to, like, recent films, considering Logan is one of her all-time favorite movies at this point. Um, so, that was very interesting to kind of actually... We didn't watch it all at once, but we sort of watched it, like, day-to-day. And they kind of go through that and see when they decide to sort of pick up storylines and when they don't decide and what gets tossed aside. It's like people have a lot of opinions on these films, some negative, some positive. Um, but I'd say watching these films, it is like the most comic accurate film series I've ever seen. Like sometimes you have different creators come on and they treat characters completely different. Uh, sometimes creators come in and they acknowledge things that happened before, and sometimes they don't. Uh, <laughs> the the visual style, much like the art style, changes drastically. Uh, sometimes they're quiet, intimate stories. Sometimes they're loud and stupid. Like, the X-Men franchise is, is probably one of, if not the most comic-accurate depictions of, of any of these characters, whether you like it or not. You know, you can say, oh... Uh, Hugh Jackman's Wolverine is awful because he's too tall or oh you know th this character never this interacts with this character so it's bad but ultimately for what they were and what they had uh, it's really impressive how high the highs are and how low the lows are I mean Hugh Jackman alone is in probably <laughs> one of the best and one of the worst uh, comic book movies ever made you know, like, not many actors can say, like, oh, yeah, I'm in, like, 
you know, multiple of the top five films, and I'm also, like, way down at the bottom, too. <laughs> it's the same character. It's not like it's Josh Brolin, who's like, oh, I was in uh, Jonah Hex, uh, but I'm also <laughs> Thanos. It's like, no, th- the first Wolverine film is, like, atrocious, but the last Wolverine film is a near-perfect film. So it's, like, it's crazy uh, sort of watching those and... Like I said, there's a lot of ignoring. There's a lot of uh, <laughs> um, choosing what is and isn't important. But ultimately, uh, the films themselves, there's a lot of very interesting choices and ideas. And uh, uh, I, I I quite enjoy them. I, I am a person saying that the first X-Men movie is wildly underrated, in my opinion. I, I would agree with that. I think that movie is a... Great way to introduce you to the concept of mutants and their plight and who's who does what and all those things is a, is a, a fantastic introduction. The same way uh, Spider-Man and Superman are for like their sort of uh, you know characters in movies. So fantastic stuff. Um, I guess real quick, my personal favorites are movies like X Two, Days of Future Past, and Logan. Uh, my least favorite ones are X-Men Origins, uh, X-Men 3, and uh, Dark Phoenix. So, um, that's that's that, Simon Kimberg. You're, you're a crazy man. <laughs> sometimes you do magnificent things, and sometimes you make a bad movie twice. So, yes. Thanks. <laughs> Simon Kimberg is one of those people that... It's surprising that he still has a little bit of clout in Hollywood. And I don't mean to be mean-spirited to the man, because he he seems like a nice fella, and he seems to be a passionate X-Men fan. It's not like he's some money-hungry, whatever, you know, Hollywood monster that just keeps on trying to bleed the X-Men until he bleeds it dry. But how many people can say... Similar to what you were saying about Jackman being in, you know, both possibly the best and the worst comic book movies, like Simon Kinberg was there for X Men Two, X Men Three, Days of Future Past, Apocalypse, and Dark Phoenix. Like, you know, it's just it's such a strange. He's also a producer, I think, on Logan, so he has his fingers deep, deep in the grundle of the X Men <laughs> franchise, and. The X-Men are often at the forefront of when comic book things go big. Like, that X-Men number one in 1991 was the highest-selling comic book of all time for a a very long time. I don't know if it still is anymore, but it was at one point. Uh, X-Men the Animated Series, huge, helped launch uh, Marvel's onslaught of cartoons in the 90s. A bunch of not-so-good cartoons, comparatively. Exactly, yeah. Uh, And then the X-Men movie in 2000 is the big springboard for comic book movies and their rise in the 2000s and 2010s. So it's such a shame to see this mighty franchise just kind of crumble and slowly die a painful death. And uh, and I'm not talking about that necessarily about the quality of the movies because at the end there, I mean, you know, Logan is excellent and you know, I, I, there are things I like in Dark Phoenix, but it would be fair to say it's not a good movie. And you didn't watch New Mutants, which I don't blame you. I only watched the X-Men movies, which sir. Is... <laughs> um, 
<laughs> I, I didn't watch. Okay, I didn't. I guess I'll, I'll address that real quick. I didn't yes. watch either of the Deadpool films, and I didn't mm-hmm. watch New Mutants. And I hear you screaming. You're smashing your table with your fists right now. Um, you know, the they're connected. Colossus is in Deadpool, and there's that cameo Easter egg of the Dark Phoenix cast in Deadpool 2. And uh, apparently they try to weasel their way into uh, the after credit scene of uh, Apocalypse and the plot of Logan with New Mutants. I don't care. I watch the X-Men movies. So the movies with Logan and Charles are the X-Men movies <laughs> at this point. <laughs> and those are the ones I watch, goddammit. So, That's fair. Uh, yeah, I, I started with X-Men and I ended with Dark Phoenix. Uh, we've talked before. Days of Future Past would have made a, be- uh, a good ending and Logan would have made a good ending. They missed both of those boats, but <laughs> that's fine, I guess. Went on too long. Yeah, yeah. Like, I watched Days of Future Past recently, and that could have been a great end to the franchise, and then it kept going. And, of course, Logan is great. You know, if if we didn't get Logan, I'd I'd be disappointed uh, to know that that's something that we could have gotten. In the alternate universe where the franchise ends with Days of Future Past, I show that version of Kirk Logan, he'd be sad. Um, No, he wouldn't. He'd be overjoyed because he just got to watch a movie from another universe. So a win-win. He didn't. He, he he didn't get all these other stupid movies, and he got to watch Logan. Maybe he'd be sad that he didn't get to see Cyclops tell Magneto that he'll fucking kill him. Yeah, uh, that's that's a that's a highlight from Dark Phoenix for me. I got multiple people messaging me about that moment in Dark Phoenix because if you follow me on Instagram, I was like posting the posters after I'd watch a film. So that was like a <laughs> yes. That was like a clue that what I was doing. <laughs> yes. Yeah. And, yeah, I had multiple people message me about uh, Scott Summers. If you touch her, I will fucking kill you. <laughs> really? Uh, so, it's the standout moment of the film. It's the only part that people remember, I guess, uh, for good reason. I said this in my video on the film, but uh, I saw that in an art house cinema, is what I'll call it. Like, it's the cinema that I go to to watch a lot of the independent films. And, like, I saw Titan there and, like, international films. It's, it's a nice, intimate cinema. And I saw Dark Phoenix there uh, in 2019. <laughs> so, like, it, it wasn't... It's not a big theater, and it wasn't full, which, again, is a sign of a dying franchise. But uh, um, I was sitting there, and then, m- you know, m- my boy, Scott Summers, tells Magneto that he'll fucking kill him. And uh, I, I don't... I can't recreate the sound I made, but it was like a combination of, like, laughing and screaming all at once. Because uh, I couldn't believe what I had seen and heard. And then these people around me just were laughing at my reaction. Um, yeah. Yeah, but anyway. if, if you watch the cartoon, that is the most Scott Summers reaction he could have in a film like oh, that. absolutely. Like... That's something people don't get, is <laughs> like, in, in an X-Men film... Like, again, the X-Men film started putting the F-bomb in there, starting with First Class. Each mm-hmm. of them after that, the Wolverine... Uh, Days of Future Past, Apocalypse, and Dark Phoenix, they all have a character saying the F word. Does Logan? Does anyone say fucking Logan? I, th- I think someone says fucking Logan. Mm, okay. Um, it might be those yeah. farmers, that they, the, the family that they meet. I think the son <laughs> says it. <laughs> the, uh, the, uh, oh, what's his name? 
I can't think of his name. He's in ER. But um, yeah, that guy. He <laughs> says it. Um, <laughs> but um, yeah, I, I would. Uh, I, if you had told me going into Dark Phoenix, you know, the person who's going to say the F word in this one is Cyclops, I would have said no. But if you also had told me that Beast would want to uh, straight up murder Jean Grey as well, I would have said, this doesn't sound like an X-Men film at all. But uh, but Cyclops saying uh, the F word <laughs> because he's gonna, he wants to threaten Magneto for trying to kill Jean, that is 100% in character for Scott Summers. He might not really ever say the F word in the comics. We were talking way longer about X-Men than I thought we were. I thought I was just going to be like, I watched the movies. It was great. This is what happens. Let's move on to some current movies, because that's what we should actually talk about. You said we could spend a whole episode on X-Men. You get me going. Um, We have both seen a movie that uh, is now the most successful movie in the box office this year. Yeah. This is uh, a surprise in some ways, and not a surprise in other ways. I mean, it makes sense. We talk a lot about how Tom Cruise is kind of the last big movie star like there are a lot of famous actors and you know celebrities and what have you but there are very few actors from a a previous era that still feel like really big movie stars true or they could even have like one of their best years ever as a as a star like money wise that's incredible and uh yeah top gun maverick uh it's a big screen spectacle, and I loved watching it. And uh, I watched the first Top Gun. I'd seen it before, um, but I like it, you know it's it's kind of a famous movie that everybody knows the events to. But I had it's been a long time since I'd watched it in full, so I watched it right before seeing Maverick. And you know it's very of its time. It's a very eighties movie. There's some stuff in it that uh, you know doesn't, doesn't you wouldn't see in movies today. And like there's almost 15 minutes straight of Take My Breath Away in the soundtrack at one point. Um, but it's uh, it's a fun action movie of the 80s. This new film keeps a lot of that fun and uh, a lot of the cheesiness of that film, but updates it a bit, and it's just, a like I said, a big screen spectacle. And I loved it, but you are Mr. Top Gun to me. So, Anthony, what did you think of Top Gun Maverick? Well, in my opinion, Top Gun Maverick is the halfway point between something like Blade Runner 2049 and Star Wars The Force Awakens. Mm. And that sounds like a strange statement, but let me explain. Top Gun Maverick is a remake of Top Gun. It is Mm -hmm. almost exactly the same kind of movie, uh... But they're very aware of that. It's a classic sort of, we're not trying to trick anybody. We're, we're, we're trying to do something that feels similar. But at the same time, we're doing a lot of different stuff. Now, it, where the 2049 bit comes in, is I feel like it improves on a lot of the stuff from that first film. Like you said, the first film is very much a product of its time. At times, it almost feels more like a music video than a film. Um, you just sort of described the elongated scenes with music, and I would say most people think of the music from that film, whether it's, uh, you know, the Kenny Loggins or whatever. Like, it's it's a lot of that stuff. And, you know, there's stuff like that. They, they 
get shirtless and play uh, sports on the beach in this film too. So, you know, (laughs) they didn't take that out, but it definitely does all the modern sensibilities of a Tom Cruise film, like a Mission Impossible type movie, but applies it with that Top Gun fun. Um, There's a, a scene in the film uh, where we get introduced to all of our new, hip, young, sexy characters. And it is your your classic kind of, like, meeting... It's like if you've seen a sports movie or uh, an army movie or any kind of movie where we have young people on a team, you know, and there's, like, music playing. Uh, that's what this feels like. You know, it's, it's, it is that kind of movie. Like, if you don't really like movies that are, like, movies... <laughs> I don't really know how else <laughs> to explain it. Like... They're they're like Spielbergian level, not you know films. They're, they're it's it's more of a gets you in emotions. This is a lot of uh, emotions going. If if you like character types and uh, fun and comfortable sort of uh, familiar territory, then this does that. But also it brings it to a point that it, it there's a lot of stuff that feels real. There's a lot of stuff that feels important. Uh, it's very very interesting. I don't know. Like, there's a lot to talk about, but at the same time, not a whole lot. Because, like I said, it's very much the the first film, but modernized. Um, but I feel like there's a lot of interesting commentaries in here, especially about Tom Cruise. Um, he's both seen as, like, a relic of the past, yes. but also someone to be revered as, like, a, a legendary person, mm-hmm. which is very much like real life. <laughs> you know? Yeah, like, yeah, totally. Um, I got the trailer for the new Mission Impossible in front of this film, which was mm. um, amazing. That trailer is, is so good. Where like the music really starts to kick in, and like they're like yeah. driving around, and like they drive that car through, and it like pulls the doors off the sides, and it's like you can tell they like really did that. Um, <laughs> it's like oh my god, this is so exciting. Uh, there's a, a lot of that here, but it is very much a, 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 like a, a feeling of like oh, Tom Cruise's character. You're really out of it, aren't you? Like you're. You're 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 feeling a little bit older. It's like um, like Skyfall, you know. It's mm-hmm. it's it's like the ad, you know that was like the whole trailer. <laughs> it was like <laughs> James Bond getting up there. Uh, that's just what Tom Cruise does now. Uh, but yeah, I I feel like it was a perfect balance of the fun, action, excitement, typical military type characters with your uh, modern action and the things that people have sort of clamored for. Since I would, you know, I don't want it to always come back to this, but the rise of Avengers type films, uh, you know, remember like the marketing for both The Force Awakens and Rogue One was like, we built sets, we have fucking props, and it's like, wow, yeah. it's not a green screen like the prequels. That was like their whole selling point for yeah, the, the older fans. It's funny that, like, looking back on that just real quick, that was all, and we'll talk about this with something else later, but so much of that was uh, we're not doing the prequels this isn't the prequels the prequels we're done and we circle back around and you know like the avengers films are shot in a certain way and it's yeah it's funny that it's like we're back to that and something like this like top gun and with mission impossible they feel a lot more unique or like what chris nolan does or people who use a lot of practical stunts and sets that feels more like like a niche now, which is something else. Yeah, my my point was kind of being that like the big studios attempted to kind of like hop on that 
we're doing Practical 2 thing. Um, uh, a, a film that we also saw we'll talk a, a little bit about later. Uh, Jurassic World Dominion has a lot more practical stuff in this than that, this new film as compared to the first Jurassic World, which was 2015. So mm-hmm. it's like the big studios tried it, and then they kind of did, eh, you know what, forget it. <laughs> no one seems to care that badly. Uh, and Endgame made so much money, and the, there was a big purple guy in it. That wasn't practical. It's fine. But you're right. People like Chris Nolan, um, they, they're, they're creating these films, and whoever Tom Cruise works with at this point, they're creating these films to have a very real feel. Um, and I feel like that's, that's what this is. I mean, any time there's a, a scene that takes place in a, in a fighter jet, it's it's exciting. Um, you, you really don't think uh, you're going to be like that on the edge of your seat with a film like this. Because if you've seen the first Top Gun, and if you've actually seen it, you know you don't just remember it, but if you've, you've watched it, there's not like a whole lot that happens. It's not like it's a movie full of dogfights. Like, mm-hmm. it's mostly training sequences, and at the yeah. end, something happens. <laughs> so it's not... <laughs> Meanwhile, this one, they were very smart to set up this sort of ticking clock element where you, you have a clear goal for the end of this film. And so that way there's always like a heightened sense of uh, urgency and tension throughout the film as compared uh, compared to the first one. And that all feels very real uh, to the point where you get to the ending and I feel like you don't realize like how much is going to happen. So when things happen, mm. you're genuinely like on the edge of your seat. You're like worried for these characters um, which was which was great. Uh, I mean, I I didn't say it at the beginning of my whole statement here, but I'll say it now. This is my favorite film of of the year. Um, I I just I, it it just has that like that that primal sort of need to go fast, you know, awakening in you. It's like how people just like dinosaurs. It's like dinosaurs are cool. There's the opening of this film is just footage of like fucking planes. And it's just awesome. It's just like there's no no way around it. It's not artsy. It's not trying to say something. You just sit there listening to Highway to the Danger Zone as like planes are flying around. And you're just like, yeah, I do like fighter jets because I like (laughs) stuff like that. So that was all very, very cool. Uh, Yeah, I don't know. Like, it's just it's just great. I like fighter jets. I like uh mr mitchell i liked uh all that that stuff it was just very pleasing i i'll just say a couple of quick things uh i think possibly that the biggest laugh i got in the movie uh was near the beginning of the film when uh maverick wanders into a diner after his plane has crashed <laughs> after he hit uh mock 10 or something uh, and uh is looking around and everyone's like, you know, everyone looks at him like, huh? And he takes a sip of water and he says something like, where am I? And the little kid replies, Earth. <laughs> Big laugh. I uh, I loved the Val Kilmer scene. Oh, God. Obviously. You know, the intro to, to our podcast, the logo, you know, we're obviously Batman Forever, guys. <laughs> so you know, I have some sentimentality about uh, uh, Val Kilmer, who's fallen on some pretty hard times and uh you know it's not like his performance is anything amazing but just him being there his presence and uh yeah i i thought it was very very sweet it uh i hate the term got me in the feels i don't <laughs> again we'll come back to that in a topic later because i have something to say but 
that was a moment that I, I got uh, more emotional than I figured I would while watching Top Gun Maverick. Yeah. Um, but that was a, a lovely scene. And like you said, there's a point where I thought the movie was about to end and then it kept going in a good way. Like, I, suddenly there was this whole other section of the movie that I was not expecting at all. And uh, I thought it was very, very exciting. Like I said, exhilarating film. Absolutely. If, if you like Hal Jordan like I do, go see <laughs> Top Gun Maverick. <laughs> Anthony, we both saw Jurassic World. Yes, Jurassic World Dominion. The final Jurassic World Dominion film to come out this year. Uh, it was very boring. It was very boring. I thought it was pretty embarrassing. I thought it completely wasted the three great actors from the original that they brought into this. Uh, it was the... It's like the poor man's version of something like A Force Awakens, of, of bringing back these characters. Uh, it was bad. The movie was about Richard Parker and the bugs. You know, you had to tell me, you and Ray told me that that character was Dogson from the first film. Yes. I completely missed that because I was laughing too much at what appeared to just be Richard Parker from The Amazing Spider-Man. Like, it, it was... He was in a lab and everything. It just looked like a scene from one of those movies, so I completely missed the introduction of his name. Yeah, he was a, he was an important Jurassic Park character. Uh, and he... Why? I don't know. That's that's how you sum up the movie, is you say something that happened in the film, and why? then you go... I don't know. Why? I, I don't know. You tell me. Um, I didn't... Yeah, I don't like this movie it was the worst movie i've seen this year i haven't seen a whole lot of films but i've seen enough and this was the worst one C campbell scott did not play that character in the original did he no no is that richard parker actor is that what you're saying yes yeah uh, sorry yeah i think the original actor got in some hot water he did some bad things i can't oh. clarify which bad thing he did but i i assume it wasn't the ones that it's like ooh no that's just how... No, he did a bad thing, as far as I'm aware. Well, on that note... I saw men! Alex... You see men every day. I see men every day. Uh, th that sounds... Anyway, Alex Garland's <laughs> new film, Men. Uh, okay, performance and atmosphere. Jesus, this doesn't sound good. <laughs> it can be enough to make me enjoy a film, okay? Even if the story is a little... Uh, loose. Let's say loose. Um, okay, both Jesse Buckley and Rory Kinnear, the two lead actors in the film, they're both really great. The film is very creepy. I loved its editing and its visuals. Uh, and its sound. I get... Reactions to this are very mixed. I guess that's what I'm trying to get around. Um, okay. There's a lot of reviews that basically just sum up the film by saying men are bad we already knew this and like i don't know i just think that's an unproductive way to talk about movies right no that's fair right <laughs> i think it's fair to call the film interpretive i think the film is more about dealing with grief more than men are bad um the one character in the film jesse buckley plays her relationship with grief and with men moving forward that's more what the film is about i don't think it's this big general representation of 
men in society necessarily. There is some of that, but it is more about this one character and how she is moving forward. Her character was divorcing her husband and he committed suicide. And... Or he dies. It's it's kind of up in the air. And but he he tells her earlier in the film that if he if she leaves him, then he'll kill himself. Mm, um, okay. So it's her dealing with that. She goes to a small town and rents this cottage. And uh, every man in this small town is played by Rory Kinnear, uh, who is one of those great actors, great British actors that you see in a lot of things. He's in the Bond films. He's Tanner in the Bond films. Um, but he's just one of those actors that pops up in everything because a lot of stuff gets made in the UK. So he's one of those great working actors. And in this, he really gets to stretch his acting muscles. He's in... Because he plays every other male character in the film. He doesn't play the husband. But he's every other male character. He's... It's never remarked upon either. It's like living in a nightmare. The film feels like a nightmare. Um, so... And I mean that as a positive. Not like Jurassic World is a nightmare. Um, but uh, I liked it a lot of people don't but the atmosphere of the film along with the performances were what I liked so there you go uh, it's not Ex Machina it's not Annihilation I don't think it's Dread either um, but uh, it's a I thought it was a good film but it's not got a great Rotten Tomatoes score so you decide for yourself well there you go folks go see Greg Kinnear in the hit film Loose Men uh, Anthony, you watched Obi-Wan. <laughs> Boy, did I. Um, I almost fell asleep at one point, so it's arguable if I, I guess I, I watched it. Uh, yeah. Obi-Wan was a six-part limited series on the hit streaming service Disney+. Plus. Uh, you can get it now and watch Robin Hood on it, I guess. Um, Obi-Wan <laughs> was fine, I guess. Uh, I can't, I see, I struggle to say that. Because... Everyone is like giving the show either praise or a pass, yes. and I I feel like that's difficult for me because I didn't like it, and that's reasonable. I feel on my part, this show just didn't do anything interesting for me. Um, there's interesting things in it. Ironically, the thing I didn't think I'd, I would need at all was the most interesting, and that was Darth Vader. Uh, no secret, Darth Vader plays quite a role in this show. And I was ready to be like, oh, Darth Vader, like, we get it, this guy, this fucking guy again. <laughs> um, but, I mean, for me personally, I think he's the best part of the show and has wow, okay. the best moments in the entire show. Um, and and uh, I think the moments that is the best part, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? It, uh, it, it gives a reason as to why they brought uh, Hayden Christensen back. So I feel like that uh, is, is a good thing. However, <laughs> the rest of the show is boring. And I don't really follow what was supposed to happen. It's a lot of just characters go do a thing and Obi-Wan kind of mopes around. And there's concepts and ideas that I think are, are fine. Like the character Reva. Reva, of course, is our, our essentially our, our new main bad guy for this show. She is an Inquisitor, which is essentially a group of elite uh, bad guys that hunt down Jedi. Um, I don't... Is that ever... I don't even know if that's ever explained. Like, I know it because I watched Star Wars crap. But, like, do people know who those people even were in the show? 
I honestly that, that, don't know. That's a good point. Because uh, I'll just say real quick, I watched the first two episodes, and I thought they were fine. thought they were okay. But when the third episode was released, I just had no desire to continue. Um, but I'll, I'll get back to that later, but I have no idea who the Inquisitors are. It, I mean, it doesn't... I don't know if it needs to be explained. I got that they were people that just hunt down Jedi because they kill uh, uh, Benny Safdie <laughs> at the beginning. Um, oh, yeah. The guy from Licorice Pizza. The guy from Licorice Pizza, yes. Um, <laughs> I'm not wrong. <laughs> no, you're not. That is who he is. No, I didn't actually know that they were a thing in greater Star Wars. I knew that one guy with the the circular white head was from the rest of Star Wars because... Is he voiced by Jason Isaacs in Rebels? Is that him? Yes. So, I mean, that's that's kind of a thing. That character is, like, the main bad guy of the first season of Star Wars Rebels and is voiced by uh, Ra's al Ghul from uh, Batman Under the Red Hood. <laughs> <laughs> the great Jason Isaacs. Don't reduce him to that. Well, is that a bad thing? I'm sorry. No, it's not a bad thing. The guy I'm from sorry. Star Trek Discovery. How about that? Oh, oh come on now. <laughs> this is getting worse. <laughs> Lucius Granger. Uh, so, yeah. <laughs> the, no the one's going to get that. Well, no one's going to get that. You're right. Uh, the Grand Inquisitor, Pumpkinhead, he is like a, a cool bad guy in the cartoon, and he was a lame bad guy in this. Um, let me get back to Reva. Like, she got a lot of hate online because she was a black woman. And people are f- fucking stupid. Um, but her character was just kind of boring to me. Like, I got what they were going for. But I feel like... And I think like that was it. This show is, like, fine if you just want to watch the events. But I didn't feel like I got to know any of these characters. Like, I wanted I wanted intimate moments with these characters. I wanted to know who Reva was. And, like, conceptually, I got it. She's, like, one of the bad guys, but she, like, goes a little too far. Like, sometimes she does shit, and the other bad guys are like, you need to chill. And, like, okay, she's, like, overly angry. I get it. I get what you're going for. But I needed, like, her to be, like, alone, and we needed to, like, know her and, like, her faults and her emotions and what she's doing. It's not until, like, the second or last episode that we get the confirmation of what's set up in the first episode that it's like, oh, she was one of the younglings, and now she wants revenge on Darth Vader. And it's like, well, why didn't we, like, get into that? Like, I would have liked to known her as a person. And instead, it's just sort of like characters walk into a room, they look around, they say some things, and then they walk and they leave. And, like, that's all anybody does in this entire show. And I, I just, I didn't, I didn't find it interesting. I didn't really find uh, little Leia interesting. Like, that didn't add anything to the story for me. Like, if I want to look at it from, like, a lore perspective, like these Star Wars guys do, uh, this doesn't add anything to the overarching story. It only muddles it, you know? Uh, I'd hate to be one of those guys of, like, oh, the canon, the timeline. But, like, 19-year-old Leia Organa contacts Obi-Wan and says, years ago, you served my father in the Clone Wars. Not years ago, you helped me get away from whoever the fuck. I don't even remember. (laughs) Like... (laughs) It's it's a little thing like that, but you it rescued me from Flea from Flea. the Red Hot Chili Peppers. That's true. He was like, you you made sure that I never dreamed of Californication. Uh, so it's like <laughs> it's just like stuff like that that's weird. Um, yeah, I don't know. I just it nothing nothing really got me except for like Darth Vader. Um, I feel like Darth Vader's like 
first appearance, he, like, shows up and basically starts, like, hurting and killing people to, like, get Obi-Wan's attention. And then sort of his disappointment with Obi-Wan being, like, a cowardly, weak old man, because uh, he's sort of disconnected from the Force, which is another thing. I wish we had gotten a story about how Obi-Wan is, like, separated himself, but he basically, to say it in easy terms, needed to accept Jesus Christ back into his heart. But, like, the stories, it doesn't focus yeah. on that. Like, we get snippets of it, but, like, it would have been really interesting to see him talk about the Force, like how he does in the original trilogy, you know? Like, like that kind of stuff. Uh, expand on the lore of the Force, talk about it like it's a thing, because, like, that's some of the best stuff in Empire is Yoda talking about what the Force is, how it's not just lifting rocks and flipping with a lightsaber. Like, it's it's a, it's a concept that binds the universe together. That's not really in this show at all. But if you want Darth Vader being, like, an intimidating dude, I like that. There's a part where, like, Darth Vader <laughs> lights up a bunch of, like, coals or something and then rubs Obi-Wan's face <laughs> in it. And, like, that's the best part because he's, like, all pissed out of it. He's like, oh, I'm going to do to you what you did to me. And that's funny. And I like that. Yeah. Um, earlier you said uh, that people either, you know, are pretty disappointed by it or appraising it like it's the greatest thing in the world i come at this with an interesting perspective of i didn't care about star wars until the force awakens like i watched <laughs> star wars when i was a little kid and i had toys and I'm, I'm sure i liked the phantom menace when i was a kid because i was a little kid um i remember watching uh uh attack of the clones i almost called it clone wars attack of the clones <laughs> Uh, on TV once and thinking it was the worst thing I'd ever seen because no one was talking like a regular person. Um, <laughs> I, I, so I hated that. And I'm I'm sure I saw episode 3 on TV at some point as well. But um, it was Force Awakens that brought me back in. And every moment of being invested in Star Wars since then, in 2015, has been a nightmare because nobody <laughs> is ever satisfied. Disney produced films and shows at a variety of quality... And I'm just sick of it. Yeah. Uh, like, I, it's it's sad. Like, I don't care anymore, and it wasn't that long ago that I was brought in, really. Um, a Ewan McGregor Obi-Wan show was the one thing I still had some interest in seeing after, again, the variety of quality of these projects. And when I watched the first two episodes and didn't think they were anything special, but I'd then go online and see people talk about how it made them cry... And I realized I'm just no longer the target audience. Yeah. If you love this stuff, more power to you. They're making this stuff for you. But when everyone lost their minds and loved the ending of Mandalorian Season 2, when a Madame Two Swords dummy showed up and took Baby Yoda, <laughs> I, I think that's probably the moment that Star Wars, my interest in Star Wars died. I didn't realize it at the time, but that's kind of the breaking point for me. This is no longer for me because I don't care about this stuff. I liked Mandalorian, how it was a show about a guy going to a different planet and then a nightmare scenario would happen and then he'd overcome it and then move on and repeat. And then the ending was Star Wars is about the same characters that it was in the 70s. It's like that harsh reminder. And uh, as long as you're referencing that and, and reminding people of that, then those fans will eat it up and that's who they make star wars for now i guess like we said earlier force awakens was look we're not making the prequels look how real everything is we're using a, a puppet of yoda in the last jedi and 
then Obi-Wan, the show comes out, and it's like, well, we plucked the one thing that everyone agrees was good, right? The casting of Ewan McGregor. But then it, like, it preys on people's nostalgia for the prequels. So it's, like, I'm fine with accepting the prequels. Like, I, I like continuity and, like, accepting everything as continuity, generally Yeah, it speaking. did happen. I'm like, can't ignore it. Like, it, it no. did happen. <laughs> Yeah, so, like, I don't have a problem with necessarily referencing that that is not inherently bad, but knowing that it's like, ah, see, they were good all along. Like, that's becoming the online discussion, and I'm just, I don't have time in my life to deal with that anymore. Well, I could talk about that, I guess, Um, because you're right, the the online reaction was definitely an odd thing, Um, and I, I myself was a big fan of Star Wars when I was a kid. I, I have a photo it's it's actually the left you guys can't see it it's a podcast i have a photo of me it's literally in my room of me dressed up as the phantom menace obi-wan kenobi uh when i was four years old because that's when the movie came out well when i was four years old uh (laughs) when i was around 10 years old i grew out my hair because my two heroes at the time had long hair that being harry potter in the goblet of fire and anakin Mm. skywalker in revenge of the sith so like I technically should be the prime audience for this. Like, I was a child when the prequels came out, and I loved them as a kid. And seeing this now, it doesn't do anything for me because I I guess I grew up. And I'm saying this as a man who has a room full of toys. Like, it, seeing this wasn't enough to, like, trigger those feelings. It had to be good. And I think a prime example of that is in one of the episodes we get a flashback between Hayden Christensen's Anakin Skywalker and Ewan McGregor's Obi-Wan. I assume it's supposed to take place between two and three, because uh, he has, like, the Padawan haircut and whatnot. Um, mm. But he's not de-aged, so it kind of looks like a grown man dressing up as a uh, Padawan, so it's a little <laughs> strange, but it's fine, it's fine. Um, but that scene, instead of a a, a way to say to, like, quote-unquote, fix the prequels. Because the biggest thing that people don't like in that movie is the dialogue. You know, uh, Hayden Christensen talking about sand. Like, that's such a big thing people joke about. Why didn't we get a scene showing Hayden Christensen's acting chops and having Mm -hmm. these two characters battle ideologies like Jedi, you know? Like, talking things out. Um, But instead, it's a lightsaber fight. And I've seen them have a lightsaber fight, like, many times. (laughs) I don't need to... What's another another stupid lightsaber fight? And, like, it's supposed to tell us about his character, like, about how Anakin is, like, headstrong and brash, I suppose. But, like, I already fucking knew that. I don't don't need new information on Anakin Skywalker. Like, this would have been a good opportunity to show that back in the day they were indeed friends, but they clearly had clashing ideas. And I know some of you are going to say, like, well, they do that in the scene. Like, Anakin comes at it from a certain way, and Obi-Wan shows him that that's not correct. And it's like, yeah, but it's in a it's in a stupid lightsaber fight, and I didn't need it. I just didn't need it, and that was disappointing to me. Um, but I mean, there's other things that I liked, I guess. Uh, uh, the what's what's the actor's name from the Eternals and the Big Sick? Uh, I liked Kamel Nanjiani. Yeah, I liked his bit. He was uh he like was tricking people into thinking like he was a Jedi, like guiding safe passage. Um, and I guess he was like a good guy, but he was kind of like morally gray. And it's like, that's a star Wars character. Like he had yeah. a whole bit where he had like had like a little device that would like secretly close the windows. And it's like a whole 
smoke and mirrors kind of uh, show that he puts on. And I thought that was really interesting. It's like, yeah, I guess people would like pretend to be Jedi in order to get uh, like good faith on their side after the events of the the series. Like, oh, you can trust me. I'm I'm the Jedi. I'm not part of the Empire. And he's just, you know, it's a borderline scam. So I, I, I like that as an idea. It's only in one episode, though, so there's really not much going past that. And like I alluded to before, there's a moment where Anakin, I guess Darth Vader, Darth Vader and Obi-Wan have their big final fight. And I mean, the fight itself is fine. I don't like the way it's shot. It's way too, you know, handy cam kind of shakiness going on that doesn't look like Star Wars to me. Yeah, based on the clips I've seen online, it, it looked too dark and too shaky. But... Yeah. Um, but there is a nice moment that is completely lifted from Rubble, so... I mean, it's not exactly original, but <laughs> it was good. Where Obi-Wan slices up Darth Vader's mask, it reveals Anakin Skywalker underneath, and uh, Ewan McGregor's performance is believable, it's good, and the shift between the Darth Vader, James Earl Jones modulated voice and the Hayden Christensen voice as he's talking, because his face is exposed, was really good, and I, I, I genuinely thought it was like the best thing in the entire show. And I'm happy that they did it, because it was like a legitimately good thing that they did. Um, it was something where it we were watching it, and obviously it's this whole series has, has been about like Obi-Wan feeling guilty, you know, because they, they failed. Yoda and him failed to defeat Darth Vader and the Emperor back in the day. The Empire took over. Now he's in hiding. He's, he sucks now. And he's always felt guilty about Anakin. And Anakin, in a way, like makes him feel better <laughs> because he says you know like you didn't kill him i did referring to darth vader like darth vader killed anakin skywalker and i was like okay that's cool that makes sense and then ray sitting next to me goes like oh they needed to explain why obi-wan says darth vader killed his father and i looked at her like what <laughs> i was like i was dumbfounded because she's right and also, I just didn't think that needed explaining. Like, Obi-Wan himself explains that in Return of the Jedi. And I just thought it was funny because, like, it works. Like, in the scene, it works. But once I realized why they put it in there, you know, because it's what the, all these prequel stuffs are. Like, it's all just connecting dots. We got to explain why Obi-Wan would say this. That's what it came off as. So, um, yeah, it kind of it kind of spoiled it a bit once I realized why they did it. But as a, as a moment itself, it's still quite good, and I really really enjoyed that. Um, but that's all I really enjoyed. I still don't get how the whole thing worked with Riva. Like she was killed as like a child, but she lived through it, and then she gets stabbed again. And freaking Melonhead is just like revenge is a powerful uh, way to keep yourself alive and i guess you're supposed to be like oh like maul and i guess vader but <laughs> like why like what was she <laughs> how is she so angry as a child how did she have the anger of a sith lord as a child to survive being stabbed by darth vader during order 66 like i don't really how did how did fucking melonhead do it like i don't understand that like <laughs> it's just very silly like, stabbing is such a, like, a definitive way to kill someone, and apparently, as long as you're just a little bit angry about it, you can survive. And I guess they're the only people that have ever been angry about being stabbed, so they lived. That look on Maul's face when Obi-Wan cut him in half was not like, oh, I've been cut in half. It was, I'm so angry, you cut me in half. <laughs> um, it's too bad that, that uh, 
uh, Ra's Al Ghul, <laughs> a different Ra's Al Ghul, um, wasn't uh, sad when he was stabbed by Maul. Because, no, because uh, he was a Jedi. Oh, so he just gets to be alive again as well. Yeah, he gets to be a ghost. Since he was not angry, he gets to be a ghost, and so that's just like living again. Um, I no, will. I, 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 I have to say this real quick, because uh, someone will yell at me if I don't. Ray has a problem with this because with Maul, when we find Maul again, he's like crazy. He's like he has he has no sense in his head. He's like gibberish. He's 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 maniacal. He's like a, a complete weirdo. And so the idea is that like he's not really alive. Like he he he's get he gets saved. Like they they sort of fix his brain, but like he he he's not just like oh dust myself off. I have robot legs now. Like he's he's a blubbering psychopath, and so it's 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 like oh well he survived but at what cost? Like the force is keeping him alive but not really. He ha- there has to be witch magic because like literal literal witches like perform magic on him and they fix him up, and that's oh. how he comes back. So it's not like this where they I I don't know if if the fucking night sisters of of Dathomir were around to fix Melonhead and Riva. Maybe they were, but. I mean, they weren't because they're dead, but like maybe they were. I don't fucking know. It's just all very, very stupid. Uh, Qui Gon was in the show though, and he was probably the best part, other than Darth Vader. Uh, I mean, he still he, he was very chipper. He he was. He he had more personality in that uh, thirty seconds than he had for almost the entire uh, uh, Phantom Menace. That's, that's not fair. that's that was that's why he was the best part. It's because he was like. <laughs> He had emotion in his voice, and that was incredible for a prequel character. Yes, that's true. I love Liam Neeson. Yeah, Obi Wan happened. If you liked it, you, you, you've probably uh, you've probably uh, tweeted a uh, crying emoji by now. <laughs> um, I'm sorry. I'm sorry to people out there. I just I can't. I'm not. Fuck them. <laughs> <laughs> I saw a movie called Cha Cha Real Smooth. Anthony, have you seen this movie? I you've told me about this and I've already forgotten about it. What is this movie about? Is this about a song? Uh, well, that song does appear in the movie. I didn't know that it was a song, so I didn't know what why it was called this. I mean, I know of the song, but I didn't know that's what it was called. Um, what? This, <laughs> this song. This okay. This, this is a great start to, to talk about this good film that I watched. I am aware of Cha Cha Real Smooth. But we'll hop this time. That's the song, right? Yeah. Yeah, this was not really a thing when I was uh, growing up at our school discos. Uh, is that a thing you guys have? School discos? We had school dances. I don't know about a disco. Yeah, we call them discos. I don't know why. It's like... That's just what we call them here. I don't know if other <laughs> other states uh, in Australia use that terminology, but, but my school certainly did. Wow. Anyway... Uh, it's directed by Cooper Rafe. Uh, I really liked his last film called Shit House. <laughs> um, now th- again, I don't know about this in America. Is Shit House a term that you guys use to describe when something is bad? A shit show, maybe not a house. Yeah, yeah see, we say shit house like uh, <laughs> uh, that. That movie was shit house. Like that's something that we'll say. Um, and it, which, and I mean, I don't use it. You'll probably notice my accent got a little broader with that example, but, uh, mm-hmm. but that is a saying over here. So that's amusing. Uh, anyway, 
Cooper Rafe, he uh, he wrote both films. He also directed and starred as the lead in, in both of these films. So I was interested in this going in. I'd heard uh, about how good it was in Sundance this year. So I was interested in it, and I really liked it. Uh, it's about a 22-year-old guy who returns home from college, and he's working a, a crappy job in, like, a, uh, a fast-food restaurant in a mall. Okay. And he's feeling directionless, and upon accompanying his younger brother to a bar mitzvah, uh, he sort of is the one that gets the kids uh, going and dancing, so he gets approached to be, like, the party starter uh, at more of these birthdays by the parents. Meanwhile, there's a mother of one of these kids, played by Dakota Johnson. Ooh. And uh, these two characters bond. Uh, she has an autistic daughter, and Rafe's character kind of babysits her. Um, it's a sweet film. I'd really recommend it. It's on Apple TV+, Plus, so not everybody has that. Um, but I will say, between this and Coda, uh, the, the Best Picture winner from this year, and the show Ted Lasso... It, Apple have the market on the good-hearted, kind of wholesome films and shows, I feel, mm. with likable characters, which is interesting. Um, because a lot of these streaming services will, like, throw stuff at the wall and see what sticks. And, like, we're seeing what's happening now with Netflix of years of doing that, investing in all sorts of random weird stuff, and now it's like, no, we gotta, we're going to have to stick to this sort of format now because people aren't watching all this random stuff we put on there. David Lynch short film talking to a monkey <laughs> apple like again they make a bunch of different shows but the stuff that seems to really stick with people um or at least the quality that people are talking about is this kind-hearted stuff so that's interesting but uh i'd recommend it he's a talented young fella that cooper rafe he understands the feeling of being aimless as a young person despite being kind of successful himself so that's frustrating but uh it's a good film i'd recommend it Kirk, you're classically trained in dance, right? I am. When's the last time you danced? That's a good question. It's been a long time since I've danced. <laughs> I, I, I don't, uh, I don't uh, go to the club uh, so much. <laughs> well, not like that, no. <laughs> um, but uh, no, it's been a. I mean, it was long before the pandemic. Like I haven't been clubbing. Uh, since the pandemic, but I, I definitely that was not a, a regular thing in my. Uh, uh, weekly routine long before that either so it's been a while right why do you ask i was just talking about you know dancing and whatnot so oh, it's okay cool i i know you have a history with dancing and that's just that's just a fact people may not know if i know about you i don't know if other people know yeah yeah i was a dancer growing up but uh, hell yeah you know who else like to to move their hips <laughs> a young How's that for a segue <laughs> a young sexual <laughs> deviant that's who Yep. Put him in jail. He wiggles his <laughs> hips. Let's talk about Elvis. Oh my goodness, Elvis. So, Elvis, we've been getting trailers for this since like what, March or something? I feel like that's I feel it's like I've been seeing like a lot that. of yeah. something like that. Um yeah, so this movie. Uh gosh, you know, I catch watching the film, I just couldn't tell who directed this, Kirk? Who directed this fine movie? Uh, it was a, a young fellow, not really, wow. um, <laughs> it was an old fellow who hasn't made a movie in 10 years, just about, uh, wow. named Baz Luhrmann, Ooh. an Australian filmmaker known for... Australian? Yes. Uh, 
I'll, I will say I have a lot of thoughts on this man's style, but I will say <laughs> I will always appreciate how he makes his stuff in Australia. This is not something that everybody listening will know, but the Australian film industry limps along. You know, it, it's not the most flourishing industry in the world, which is very sad, but Moulin Rouge and, you know, obviously Australia was an Australian yeah. film, but, it, but, uh, but it, you know, it was a 20th century Fox film, so, you know, you could say it's an American production technically, but that's an Australian film as well. Um, the Great Gatsby, he makes his stuff here. He employs Australian crew members and actors, and I appreciate that. Not many people will know the thrill of watching a big Hollywood film like Elvis and going like, oh, there's David Wenham. Oh, there's Richard Roxburgh. And then you start to realize that you recognize, like, not only, like, Cody Smith McPhee and actors that are, like, sort of do stuff in America, but all sorts of actors where I don't even necessarily know their names, but I recognize them from television out here or theater or whatever. Every single supporting cast member in this movie besides Tom Hanks, is an Australian. So <laughs> that is, uh, it's like, you know, you do like the, the Rick Dalton point, like every time you, you notice somebody, it's uh, oh. entertaining. Your theatre was very busy then, for the sound <laughs> of it. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, before getting into the movie, I'll say this really quick, um, because I just saw it yesterday. So we actually haven't spoken to each other about our thoughts on this yet. Correct. Uh, but I went to a session... And uh, I was sitting near the front, and uh, I turned around to look at how packed it was. And again, this was a smaller seated theatre, but um, it was full. But as I turned around, I noticed that uh, they were all an older audience. And there's an argument that this movie should not be simply called Elvis. (laughs) Because it's not really about... Elvis in the traditional sense, but you're not going to get people coming to a movie called like Meal Ticket or something like that, which is probably <laughs> like more. It should be called something more like that, like it, it, something a little more subtle. But you're not going to have all these audiences go and see a film called that if you call it Elvis and you put Elvis Presley on the poster. Everyone knows what that is, and they're going to see that. And uh, I, I was looking around. I'm like, wow, everyone's you know, this is an Elvis going crowd, I guess you'd say. Yeah. And I noticed that they were all looking in my direction, just about. And uh, I thought, like, <laughs> oh, the one of two things happened. Either everyone turned around because I drew their attention by looking around myself, or uh, I was, like, looking on my phone right before it, and were they all thinking, look at that millennial on his fucking phone. He better not be on that during the movie. Uh, <laughs> was it was it like like the uh the scene in Home Alone where the bag reaches uh Fuller at the end and then he goes to hand it to Kevin and it's the elderly couple just standing there except that like <laughs> times tenfold <laughs> that was it um it's it's uh yeah it, it I just I noticed like wow older audience I mean that makes sense because it's Elvis but yeah uh, same here we had a, we had a very similar yeah. thing it was we were probably the youngest people and we're in our late twenties so yeah it was a very older crowd for this uh old musician yes so what'd you think about australia um yes the 2008 film australia i quite like australia um i don't know how australians feel about australia but like one day it was on tv and i just sat down and watched it which is impressive because 
Australia is not a short film, and the fact that I sat there uh, fil- watching a film on a whim, in an, on an afternoon no less, and watched that whole gosh darn thing, is I deserve a medal. Uh, you know, <laughs> that's impressive. But that was the only film I saw of Mr. Lerman before this. I know of Moulin Rouge, and I know of Gatsby, but I never seen those movies. So um, I knew of them, I knew of the style, and it seems like. Based on your letterbox review, it seems like everyone has the same impression of this movie. Austin Butler is fantastic. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yeah. Everyone uh, everyone appreciates Austin Butler's performance. It is he, the best thing in the movie. He's fantastic. And the first half is way crazier and wild than the second half of the film. At one mm-hmm. point, it stops doing that. And that's yes. weird. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I was uh, thinking, no matter what side you fall on, whether you like it or not, everyone recognizes the style. And you either like it or you don't. And for me, I watched his Baz Luhrmann's Gatsby film earlier this year for the first time. And I did not care for that because I, <laughs> I just didn't get the style. It felt really cheap-looking. Um, there's a scene, I mean, if you look up bad ADR, I'm sure it's a scene that'll pop up pretty quickly, um, of, uh, Leonardo DiCaprio and Tobey Maguire in a car, and, and, uh, Leo's doing most of the talking, he plays Gatsby, obviously, and, um, it's like all these wide shots where, like, DiCaprio's lips do not line up with the audio at all, and, like, I'm sure a lot of it is kind of green screen, because they're not gonna actually put... DiCaprio and Maguire in a uh, uh, a convertible and, and zip them around the town uh, in real life. <clears throat> so it just looks it, it looks prequel fake. Like it, it, right. even I, I would argue it looks worse. Um, it's something that Baz Luhrmann does, and he does it. I should say it's not as bad in Elvis, um, but something that he does a lot in a lot of his films is this artificial camera zoom. It just drives me nuts. It's not a zoom with the camera lens. It's not pushing the camera towards the actor. It's done in editing. Yeah. Where he zooms in. And it because it's done in editing and not with the camera, it always looks fake. And I find it very, very distracting. It's and like a comedy might... bit. It it, it yeah. makes you laugh. It doesn't feel serious or like like tensions are high. It it feels very comedic. Yeah, and I I don't like it. And I'm like showing these uh, frantically edited crazy montages to represent the craziness of Elvis's life is like that's appropriate, but he also does these crazy montages in moments where it's not appropriate. Like yeah. the, the before Elvis's first performance or the first performance that we see in the film, um, it's like dispersed with like scenes of him as a child and and like other things, and it's like ah why like. That doesn't... To me, it was, like, so much more powerful when he was just standing there and, uh, like, you have these wide shots of the crowd just all staring at him in silence. Like, those Mm. are really effective. But right before it, it's, like, chopped up. Again, not the whole film. The whole film is not like this, but the first half definitely is. And setting the film from the POV of the movie's villain is a strange uh, choice. But I also get that... (laughs) If you're going to do a biopic about Elvis, it's hard to sum up someone's life 
like we've outgrown the old you know biopic format of telling someone's whole life story in you know 90 minutes yeah so i appreciate that uh, you need some sort of gimmick and maybe some way of telling the story um but then you're left with this ending where like i was feeling really moved by the ending and uh you know i don't want to spoil things for, for everyone but i'm sure everyone knows by now that elvis passed away um but like you have colonel parker tom hanks's character talking about how i didn't kill him it wasn't the drugs or the booze it was you it was you, you. killed elvis i like, did not kill elvis <laughs> it's like this cartoony like disney villain is talking yeah. about like this genuine like you said heart touching moments i that is that is very true about tom hanks in general in the film is he makes some choices yeah i mean this is like fuck it mode you know like he yeah. is just going for it and i guess you can appreciate that to a point but um a lot of the best stuff of the film is sort of elvis sort of reconnecting with what he thinks is important like that's when the movie gets a lot less silly it's like whenever his hollywood career fails and he gets back into music yeah. Um, but yeah, you've got that mixed in with, I knew Elvis would do this, but I had to make sure that my part of the deal was secure. Like, it's that, it's like, what are you yeah. doing? It's so, and then it would like go into his eye and turn into a fucking like roulette wheel. Then that turns into a <laughs> Ferris wheel. And it's like, yeah, it's like, it's, it's like insanity happening. We were uh, defending in, I think, our last episode, the choices made in Multiverse of Madness of, <laughs> like, these wacky montages that Sam Raimi is famous for. And you know, there's been a lot of talk online about, like, how stupid this is. And, like, you know, then you just have a thousand people doing the ratio tweet. And <laughs> I understand why that style isn't for everyone, but I really appreciate that in in the Doctor Strange film. It's also in a movie called Doctor Strange, so it's not as <laughs> That's offensive. True. Yeah, there's something about the way it's done in this film where, again, because there's a an artificialness to how it looks and, and like, this really digital, like, done-in-editing nature of it that just doesn't feel very... It just feels kind of forced to me. Like, it, it, Baz Luhrmann's style just isn't for me. I mean... <sighs> This is, again, this is all throughout Gatsby. It's not as much throughout this, but it, it really bugged me in one particular scene in this. His use of modern music. And yes, yes, absolutely. I understand in the, like, the business side of having a famous artist make a song for your film and putting it in there. And it doesn't always fit. But, like, I understand the business side of why that happens. Yeah. Lady Gaga just did one for, for Top Gun. Um, exactly. One that I remember we've talked about before is Haley Steinfeld's song at the end of uh, Bumblebee. Because that yes. movie is filled with 80s music. And then the credits are, like, this poppy modern song. And I think you were like, yeah. what the fuck is this? And then it was like, oh, it's, <laughs> it's the star of the movie. <laughs> okay. Yes. Yeah. And so in this, it's a movie about a musician and about music. So, using music from the time period is a wonderful way to set the tone for a scene. And in this film, Baz Luhrmann makes the creative decision to have a Doja Cat song accompany a scene of Elvis getting inspired walking around Beale Street during the 50s. 
why? <laughs> I don't uh, understand that choice, and I never will. No, I I agree. Um, there's a, uh, it's uh, during his montage of his, his Hollywood movies. There's like a spliced in like uh, toxic. Britney Spears is yes. toxic. It was very yeah. distracting. It's just it's very very that's that, that's where there's a lot of stuff to really like about this this movie and even stylistically. Um, mm-hmm. Like there's that that whole part explaining his backstory that's drawn like comic book panels. And at first, I was legitimately like, what the fuck? Why does it look like a comic book? Is it just because it looks weird? Um, but then it's revealed because Elvis's favorite comic book is Captain Marvel Jr. Uh, uh, you know, the Captain Marvel's the, the part of, I guess, one of the side, I guess that's a sidekick. I don't know. Uh, the yeah. DC superhero. And, like, that plays into the plot a little bit, that whole concept. So it's not just there to be like, oh, comic book, because it's part of his history. It's, like, there for a reason. It's like, okay, that's interesting. And you're right. There's a lot of stuff that plays up, like, the like Elvis's sort of uh, ability to rile people up and create this sort of uh, the, the craziness. And, like, that's presented in the film. And, like, that's fine. And yeah, there's just a lot of really, really good ideas. And we mentioned it at the top, but, like, yeah, Austin Butler's, like, really, really good. Like, any time he's on screen and he's talking, it's, like, it's not distracting, you know? Because Elvis is, like, the most impersonated person ever, you know? (laughs) Everyone has a thank you very much impression that they can do, you know? Yeah, everybody knows. you just drop your voice, you got that. Uh, But, like, to see it presented as a person was really interesting. Um, And I, I believe Elvis's daughter said that this was the most accurate depiction of her father that she'd seen. Um, which is good, because, I mean, obviously it's a movie that depicts him as a, as a victim, but he's not exactly a saint either. Um, so, I no. mean, it must be really interesting to kind of see some, like, your dad is super famous, and everyone, like you said, everyone has that in their back pocket. But to see something that you perceive as a genuine representation of your, your father is like, that must have been really great. So, I mean... That 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 is the universal sort of uh, theme here is this performance and uh, from what I understand the music was a mix some of it was sung by Butler and some of it was sampled from Presley's like actual music and sure. I mean I never really noticed anything jarring in that regard to the music so I think that worked really well. No, um, like it's it's not Rocket Man in the sense that you know well that's really Taron Egerton but he doesn't sound exactly like. Elton John, but he sounds enough like him, and he's a good enough, like, he's a very strong singer, not good enough, like, he's a very good singer, so it's, like, you don't ever really think about it, because it's good, and that is more of a musical in that the Elton John songs accompany uh, the appropriate moments in Elton's life to apply those songs to. In this, his songs are more... Like, you see him, like, performing these songs. They're not uh, reflective, necessarily, of that time in his life. Yeah. So, I get why you would do what you did there. It's it's not... Uh, I mean, I've never seen uh, Bohemian Rhapsody, but obviously that's something that people talked about in that film, both in the sense that it was more of a characterization of this man's life, um, but also <laughs> uh, 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 Rami Malek... I don't blame him for not singing because no one sounds like Freddie Mercury, but it's also really noticeable that it's a man lip-syncing to Freddie Mercury. So 
Uh, I think this is like there's the two ends of the spectrum, I guess. You got Bohemian Rhapsody and you got Rocket Man in terms of performance, and I think this fits right in the middle. Yeah, this works absolutely. So yeah, yeah, yeah. I definitely. I mean, if we're going to be comparing stuff, Rocket Man is a more of what I look from in a musical. You know, yes. like it, it it fits that bill a lot better. Um, but yeah, this is definitely better than Bohemian Rhapsody. It is like that sort of middle point, like you said. Um, but it's it it everything that it, it does right works fairly well. It just is also in a very strange package. And yeah. um, you're you're totally right with it. it's like it's funny that this is attracting such an older crowd because it is an older star. Um, but I can't imagine recommending this to people without a caveat of like uh, keep in mind this is not like a standard <laughs> biopic yeah. this is a you know like i'm just imagining someone like oh i loved elvis when i was younger you know and then going to see this and you're like gripping the arms of your chair because you're like what the fuck is happening oh my god i want to get off <laughs> like the fucking uh wonka ride but i i liked it it was good it was good it was uh pretty harmless i guess ultimately when you balance it out like it's gonna be a movie people will like it and i think we're all gonna move on and that'll be it yeah like you mentioned my letterbox review it's i feel like i was looking at it this morning because i wrote it last night and i look at it you know after a a night's sleep and i was like oh wow this is this plays more negative than probably what i actually feel (laughs) Um, it's like mostly (laughs) negative about like the editing and how much you fucking hate this this famous australian director and and then you go three and a half stars (laughs) (laughs) yeah you know i uh uh have we we got time I, i got a baz Luhrmann story uh wow okay you you mentioned australia the movie oh okay i guess we both have I mentioned earlier about the the titling of this film and how it probably shouldn't be called Elvis. Um, Similarly, Australia should not be called Australia. It implies (laughs) that it's about, like, the history of, or the, you know, the the discovery of, or, you know, about Australia. Technically, there's Australian history in it. (laughs) There, There is Australian history, just like there's, like, you know, American history in just about any film that takes place in America that's a, a... you know, a real story, quote unquote. This is not something that happened in Australia. The, the story of uh, a, a British aristocratic woman who falls in love with a drover. You know. So, anyway, um, I remember Baz Luhrmann announcing that title on uh, uh, morning television here, and I want to preface this by saying that I do not hate Baz Luhrmann. I really don't. But there's a little bit of uh, pretentiousness to him. I don't think that's unfair to say. Uh, Because he's sitting there and he goes, It's going to be called Australia. (laughs) And like he moves his hands as if to say, like, Ah, look, name and lights. And I just, at least that's how it is in my head. I'll probably watch it later and be like, Oh, it didn't play like that at all. He just says um, it. I'll be able to call Australia. Yeah. (laughs) But that's how it came across to me. Um, but uh, I was... Uh, uh, high school in Australia is from 7th grade to 12th grade. So I was in high school. Uh, and I guess this would have been 2007, because the film came out in 2008. They were filming it. And uh, those of us who took film class, uh, film studies... Mm, I know the story. Okay. Yes. Uh, there were a, a handful of us that were picked to visit the set of Australia and meet Baz Luhrmann. And uh, I was one of these lucky folk. 
so we visited the, the, the different sets. And again, talking earlier, like with, with Star Wars and with uh, with Top Gun and that, like the really big sets, uh, you know, like because there's, if you haven't seen the movie, um, you know, similar events that, that happened to Pearl Harbor happened in Australia. So there's these big sets of craters and everything. And, uh, you know, the, these big sets that feel like you're like in a, a small city um, that are made to look like the outback and really, really spectacular stuff. It's stuff like this that I think has led to the the downfall of of this sort of <laughs> filmmaking because I don't think Australia made enough money for how big this production was. But, <laughs> People you know. look at this and they go, "Why are we doing this? This is yes. stupid." <laughs> we can create all of this on a computer for less than half the price. <laughs> yes, um, but uh, you know, we we met Baz Luhrmann. I don't know if it was his idea to invite school students or not. Uh, I went to performing arts school, so I. I don't know if this was his idea or not, but uh, anyway, he he took time out of his busy schedule of directing this multi-million dollar movie to talk to us kids, so I respect him for that, and uh, it was very pleasant. I believe we got a photo. I don't have evidence of it. I'm sorry. I don't know why. Same with a, the a person we met later. We, we I don't have either of these photos, but uh, <laughs> anyway, you know, I, we were told Nicole Kidman isn't here. We don't know about Hugh Jackman, but Nicole Kidman's not here. It's like, oh, well, I don't get to tell her that I loved Chase Meridian. That's a shame. Um, so we're, we're sitting there, and uh, uh, like we're, we're going to leave soon, and, and then a very, very tall orange man <laughs> walked over to us uh, wearing sunglasses, and uh, I realized this was Hugh Jackman. Hell yeah. I could ask Hugh Jackman any question in the world about the film industry, about acting, uh, so I chose to ask him if he would sign my X-Men 2 DVD. <laughs> And now we come all the way back around to our first topic, which was X-Men. Hugh Jackman. Of course, Hugh Jackman's the world's nicest man. So it's, it's all Hugh Jackman. Yeah. It's all, all connects to Hugh. I think we're. I think that's good. Do you have anything else to say about Elvis? I. I, I mean, it's it's a it's a good movie, but it's also the style is not going to be for everyone. But the performance is great from Austin Butler, and the performance is interesting. I guess is what you'd call it from Tom Hanks. I guess that's how <laughs> I'd sum it up. Um, I will say this. If you wanted to know if this movie addresses the idea that Elvis Presley stole all of his music from black people and their whole oh, genre yes. and that uh, he potentially basically robbed them of their sort of culture identity, and, um, go see another film. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there's that uh, that very brief shot where uh, when he's filming his Christmas special. And he's talking to the audience on the small stage, and he's like, "Rock and roll was, uh, uh, to me, derived from uh, the blues in the South." He says something like that. Blues and, and gospel. Blues and gospel. That's it. Yeah, and it's like that's all we really get of his defense. <laughs> like we see Sammy Davis Jr. say, "Like, hey, you can wiggle your hips and not get arrested because you're a white boy." And like that's about the extent of this. I I don't know if it's appropriate to laugh. I'm sorry, but uh, <laughs> um, that is how much the film really addresses it. That's it. That's Elvis for that, you. That's Elvis. <laughs> uh, Anthony, where where do people find you? Do we need to do this every week? I think people know this by now. Um, I was just thinking that. I, yeah, it's how the show fucking ends. We gotta have a, a closer. Okay. What is someone? This is their first episode. They sat through all of this. They sat. They listened to his shit on Obi Wan and uh, <laughs> joke about 
Australia's uh, film ministry. You know, they deserve to know my Twitter handle. Well, where can people find you on the Twitter? <laughs> you guys, you guys, you can find me at Anthony Lantern on both Twitter and Instagram, and I guess Letterboxd. Um, you always plug Letterboxd. I never remember to, because it's not exactly a thing that I do. It's just a thing that yeah. I, I partake in. I don't like... I don't know. People don't need to see it, is what I'm saying. Um, but I do write some good... Sh- I'm very clever. I'm very, very funny. Recommend that you check it out. Such good shit. Uh, yeah. <laughs> um, so yeah, check that out if you want. And I'm uh, also Anthony Reviews. We're Anthony Reviews over on YouTube. I recommend you check that out. Last video, no one watched it. So if you could watch it, that'd be great. <laughs> Uh, yeah, I'm Kirk Beattie, uh, at Kirk Beattie on Twitter and on Letterboxd. I, the only reason I guess I plug my Letterboxd is because I don't take Letterboxd seriously. Like, there are people who take it very seriously, and, uh, you know, that, that's fine. But I, uh, I, I guess I plug it because I spend a lot of time, like, logging everything I watch now. So, it, so it's like, oh, if you're, if you're interested in hearing us talk about movies, which is what we do here, then you'll probably be interested in that. I guess that's why I plug it. Yeah, you, they should follow you for sure, because you're like the right level, where you you say mm-hmm. things that are valid, but it's also not, you know, like you said, you're not taking yourself too seriously. You yeah. you write a perfectly good summarized opinion, so I, I appreciate that. Well, thank you. Um, and if you want to follow me on, on, follow me, no, that's not it, subscribe to me, on or watch me on uh, the YouTube, you can. But last time I said there was a video that was coming and I joked, maybe I'll give up again. Guess what? I gave up again. Um, but there will be a video um, <laughs> that, that Anthony and I are in together that oh, yeah. you might enjoy. All so, we do is uh, stuff together. <laughs> yeah, this is this is what it's become. <laughs> I guess, you know, that's fine. That's fine. We like it, you know. We, do. <laughs> we wouldn't be doing it if we didn't like each other. Wouldn't that be funny if, like... It's been like a decade that we've known each other, and it just comes out of like we hate each other. We're like uh, we just have this antagonistbusters. Like... Yeah, exactly. Yeah, it's like those guys. Yeah, <laughs> Anthony, do you have a song? I don't have a full song, but I was thinking about this. Uh, there's oh. a there's there's a movie where a character sings <clears throat> a bit of an Elvis song, where he sings the "I'm feeling so lonely, babe. I'm feeling so lonely." And do you know that film? Do you know the actor that I'm about to mention? George Miller's Happy Feet. And the person that <laughs> sang it was Hugh Jackman. That's it. <laughs> <laughs> That's a good ending.